Hello, 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 my fellow geeks and nerds of all shapes, sizes, colors, genders, whatever there is in between. This is Dawn of the Devs Podcast, the podcast for the tech curious and the career enthusiasts. This is everything you need to know about life after Dev Bootcamp. All right, everyone, welcome to Dawn of the Devs, and today is all about the Benjamins. We're going to be talking about the dreaded money questions. A lot of people hate it. It's awkward because a lot of us, including myself, were raised not to talk about money. But if you enjoy not having to live in a cardboard box and eat it out of trash cans, then it's probably something you're going to have to face. And so you might as well learn how to get good at it. And so to help us with that conversation, we have an absolute gem of a guest with us today who, when I was researching her accolades and what she's up to, I realized she's got way too much going on for me to mention everything. But just a few to give you a taste of what she's all about. Uh, She is a technical recruiter. She is focusing on software developers and, and really pretty much anything that touches tech from junior all the way on up to senior and executive level positions, all sorts of stuff. She's a career and personal branding strategist. She's over at Galvanize. If you're in Phoenix, you know exactly where that is and who they are. Uh, She is a part of Girls in Tech. She's a part of a Women's in Tech initiative with Galvanize. I mean, literally, guys, I could go on for an entire (laughs) episode talking about everything that she's doing. She's, I mean, she's literally doing everything. But her name is Dana Charfalia. Did I get it right? Did I say the last name right? You did. You did. I'm, I'm impressed. Yes. Nailed it. <laughs> yes. All right. So Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to have you. Me too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And just so, I mean, I, I gave a, uh, an okay version of an introduction <laughs> for you, but tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, how, what have you been up to? What are you doing? Uh, give us the, the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch. Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, I'm I'm an IT recruiter, and I I don't have a background in tech anything, nor do I have a, a long background in recruiting. I actually have a background in career counseling and coaching, and a lot of personal brand strategy things like that. But I realized got super interested in tech a, a few years ago, um, during doing some consulting, and uh, a few years ago I joined the the tech recruiting space and. I um I was with one agency for a bit. Now I'm with a relatively new agency out here in Concentric. It's called Concentric and I really, really focus and strategize with software engineers from again from that junior to senior level. And so we work most of the clients that we we touch here in Phoenix um are, are highly, highly, highly culture conscious um tech companies. A lot of SaaS companies. I mean there's nearly two hundred of them, maybe more than that in Phoenix. So that's where I tend to really specialize. And though I'm not a coder myself, I'm fascinated by it. And I love sitting down with engineers, believe it or not. Um, I think most of the engineers I've actually talked to are some of the coolest people I've ever met. And I'll say prior to being in tech, I did not think that that was the case. Sorry, Jason. Um, But I love it. (laughs) So it's been fun. (laughs) 
Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you're literally, you're doing a little bit of everything. It's kind of awesome. Mm -hmm. But, but like I said, uh, we're, we're getting into the, the topic that make a lot of people cringe. It's talking about money. And I think the reason why a lot of people cringe is because it hits really close to home. It's a gut check. It's a pride thing, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. they don't want to talk about it. Or if they do want to talk about it, they just don't know how. And so, you know, Dana, as, as a career Mm -hmm. coach, you've probably coached a a bajillion people on how (laughs) to answer the the dreaded money question. And so uh, let's play a little role play Mm -hmm. here. Let's say you're my career coach and I am a .NET developer in Phoenix going to one of your clients. Uh, How do I how do I even approach that money? What do I say when somebody says anything about money? Well, I, I think the first thing to to think about is, is it's all, it, I, I hate to say this, but it depends, right? So it's going to depend on a few things. It's going to depend on you specifically, what your history looks like, your skill sets, your abilities, the multitude of languages, frameworks, tools that you've been exposed to, how you've used them, what you've created, all of that goes into the, the money piece, but it's also the market you're living in. Um, so if, you know, if you've been living in a box working at the same company for 10 years, you may not have done your due diligence and figured out what the market looks like, where it has shifted, um, or even if it has shifted since you've started your position. So I think it comes down to really understanding your own value, understanding the market, and also doing your own research, talking to other engineers who do what you do and kind of get together and talk about that conversation because I've seen a huge, huge gap in people who have very similar skill sets. And, um, and I think a lot of it just comes down to their, your own personal due diligence. Right. And so, I mean, me as a job searcher right now, how do I, where do I even start? I mean, I know that there's Glassdoor, there's, there's Indeed, there's Google. I mean, what, where do you suggest I start? Because I I have my own personal skill sets that aren't really generic. It's, it's a pretty specific skill set as a .NET developer or or Mm -hmm. fill in the blank with whatever tech I'm in. Mm -hmm. What do I do? How do I find out how much I am specifically worth? You know, I, and of course I'm biased because I'm a recruiter, but I think one of probably the easiest ways for you to find out within a couple of hours, honestly, is to talk to a few different recruiters um, who, because recruiters, they generally are working with anywhere from, you know, 10 to 50 different companies in your area. And chances are they know what companies are willing to pay, what kind of companies pay what. And so if you as a, as a rare .NET developer, put your resume out there or just find five recruiters on LinkedIn, reach out to them and say, hey, I want to chat with you. I guarantee you no recruiter is going to tell you no. <laughs> so no, that's right. a really easy and fast way to do that, in my opinion. But Will that uh, advice hold if you're a recent college graduate or boot camp graduate too? To be able to reach I, I mean, I can only come from my perspective, but I have never ever, I would never say no, whether you're an aspiring Mm -hmm. software engineer or a software architect, like I'm never going to say no to having a conversation with you because you know what I mean? It's just, you're valuable, whether you are a bootcamp student, bootcamp grad or an engineer in Mm -hmm. in my eyes. And I think a lot of recruiters feel that way as well. Yeah. 
I'm just asking. I, I don't know if recent grads would even think to reach out to a recruiter. Um, and I wish I would have whenever I graduated because yeah. I, I, I was looking at indeed.com or jobbing.com, one of those, right? And it was saying the average salary for software engineer in your area is like 60 grand. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm going to go get 60 grand. And then my first job was like yeah. 45K. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Uh. Well, you know, I, I've honestly had an engineer, um, .NET developer, I mean, this is not a joke, be, being paid $13 an hour. <laughs> And, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he was like, I, know, I, mean, I don't know. Because he didn't talk to anyone. He didn't know. And then he just kind of stayed there and like, <laughs> wow. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't know how you, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Like, what's happening? <laughs> so, so was but. he a .NET developer at the same time as making sandwiches at Subway? Like he was coding on the, no. the sandwich line? <laughs> no. <laughs> so how do you do that? <laughs> uh, that's what I'm saying. So he he was working for a nonprofit organization, and they recruited him. Mm. Obviously, he was at the beginning of his career, but he stayed there for like, I, as far as I know, he's still he's actually still there, and it's been there for two plus years. And they're just not able to pay him any more than that. And I guess he liked their vision and just decided that that was okay. And then eventually, someone was like, "Dude, you are not being paid well enough." And then he decided to start reaching out to recruiters and start looking at other opportunities, but. But the hard, here's, and, and I guess it's an, another topic that we can get into or not, but once you, if you're a two plus year .NET guy and you've been making $25,000, $30,000 a year and you tell a recruiter that, recruiter's going to be like, mm, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's yeah. not, yeah. that's not necessarily fair, but it is what it is. Like I talked to a six year .NET developer who was getting paid 65 and I'm like, um, you're not telling other recruiters that, are you? Because I felt like he was actually really good. And he's like, yeah, I've been telling them that. And I was like, I'm not about lying, but you might want to bump that up a little bit if you're going to talk to people about your salary because you're worth a lot more than that. So, I mean, it can get complicated. Yeah, no, I mean, so that's, you bring up a really interesting point. And I know that this is a, kind of hot topic, not just in the recruiting world, but I mean, it's, it's gone all the way to government where they are now mandating in certain states that you are not allowed to ask people their salary history. And yeah. so, oh, wow. yeah, that's, yeah, that's, no, that's no, I think that, that's interesting, man, that you bring that up. Cause that's something I've always been wondering about. Like, why, why does everyone need to know what I've made for like the last three years? Mm -hmm. or it's, I'm kind of curious about that one. Yeah. So, I mean, th that is something that some just uh, hopefully, you know, Dana and I don't get barred from, you know, ever <laughs> being able to be a recruiter anymore, or whatever <laughs> mysterious organization recruiters are a part of. But there are certain staffing companies, it's, it's not uncommon that they one of the requirements for every single call is that you get at least the last three years or the last three positions, you get the mm -hmm. salary history of those last three positions. And it's, I'm not saying that that is right, but I'm saying that is kind of the industry standard within the staffing mm -hmm. industry. And it's been that way. I mean, basically since the beginning of the staffing industry, it's, it's just one of those things that people do. 
um, the, the reasoning behind it. And this is something, again, if you are on the job market and you're dealing with recruiters, take notes on this reason that they do it is because that gives them the upper hand in the negotiations. If you mm-hmm. say, I mean, for example, taking the guy that, that Dana was just talking about, he says, you know, I've, I've been making 30,000 for the last two years. Uh, they might have a job that will pay that guy 70,000, but all of a mm-hmm. sudden they realize, Ooh, I could probably get this guy in at 50,000 and mm-hmm. he would be super stoked, but I would make more money and it would be more likely that they'll hire this guy because he's a little bit cheaper and all that stuff. Instead of giving you what you're actually worth, they'll yeah. give you what they think you'll be potentially happy with. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? So icky. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I do. I absolutely agree. And it, it honestly, it makes me feel really icky inside because I'm like, I am not all about that. <laughs> I am not that kind mm-hmm. of recruiter. And I know that you're not either, but I've seen it happen plenty of times because, you know, uh, and there's just, you know, some recruiters, business development people out there, they're out there in it to make some money. And, Sometimes they see an opportunity to make an easy placement and, and make an easy profit off of someone. And sometimes that's the mindset of people. And, and I think that's an entirely different episode is how do you choose a good recruiter from a, a yes. dev standpoint from the beginning of your career? But I mean, those are just some of the things that you got to be aware of. Man, we're opening up the Pandora's <laughs> box of trolls on <laughs> yeah. LinkedIn pretty soon. Um, so, I mean, let's, let's go this route then. So how do you answer that? Let's say I'm the guy that, uh, is making 13 bucks an hour as a .NET developer and I get asked by a recruiter, what are you making at your current job? How do I even answer that then? So my first instinct is to be honest. Um, and say, hey, look, this is what I'm making. I realize that I am significantly below what I am, what I should be making and what's comparable to other people with my skill set. But here's why I've made the decision to stay where I'm at. And here's why I'm ready to make that move. And here's why I know I'm actually worth 70 or whatever that is. If you can clearly articulate that, I think being honest is okay. But I, again, I'm not a proponent of lying, but I've seen it work out much more often in in a dev's favor to lie about what they're making and they end up easily getting a job that pays them, you know, 80 to a hundred percent more than what they're currently making. And and it wasn't an issue for either side. So it didn't hurt anybody in that scenario. Um, The recruiter later on was like, you were only making that and now you're making this. And then, you know, they weren't mad about it. No one was hurt in that scenario. So I have a hard time. What do you think about that? I don't know. I have a hard time with that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting thing. And so I, I struggle with the right way answer because I am not a proponent of coaching anybody to, to lie, but mm-hmm. I, I don't, think and I think the reason why it's uncomfortable is because and again uh, we're gonna get so much crap from recruiters because of this episode <laughs> but it's none of our business to be honest 
Like no. I, I don't mm-hmm. even like as a recruiter, like if somebody asks me if I was on the market for a new job as a recruiter and somebody asked me what I'm making, I wouldn't want to give that to them. That's, I mean, no. uh, that's literally none of their business. And so my whole thing mm-hmm. is you can say, you know, this is what I'm looking for. You don't exactly tell them this is right. what I'm making. A, uh, I'm looking for something in the range of, you know, film, you know, mm-hmm. 60 to 70,000 a year. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's, that's exactly what market value is. And, and that mm-hmm. coming back to what you said originally, you got, you got to do your research. You got to go on Glassdoor. Mm-hmm. You got to call the recruiters. You got to go on whatever and figure out what you're actually worth. So that way you can, you can say that number with confidence and yeah. you can even tell them that you researched it and that's what it is. Um, but here's, what you got to be prepared for because you could be super prepared with all that super confident in what you're about to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for 60 to 70,000. And then they say, okay, awesome. But what are you making right now? And then you're like, uh, crap. Like, right. You know, I, do yeah. I have to say it? Cause they asked me a second time. Um, mm-hmm. and so, cause, because again, a lot of staffing companies, it's ingrained in them that they have to get that. Otherwise it's not considered like a successful call. Uh, right. And uh, again, this, this is not every staffing company no. out there. This is not every recruiter out there, but it is something that's out there. Um, and so mm-hmm. what you can do, uh, I think is exactly what you said on yours is, you know, this is exactly what I'm making. Be honest from the get go. This is exactly what I'm making. Here's why I've stayed here for so long. You can talk, you give them the story about why mm-hmm. you stayed there. You know, say, this is why I love the company. Or it could be, I was wanting to get experienced and I knew that I was being paid less than I, I am worth having this experience. And now that I have that experience, this is what that's worth. And so in order for me to move, I need to move to this market value. Otherwise, I'm going to stay here until I find that. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great way to go about it. And to go back to that question of, hey, like, oh, my God, they asked me again, like, what am I making? And in from a recruiter standpoint, when I was trying to get that information, because that's what I was told I needed to do. If, if a recruit, if a candidate said, you know what, there's, I'm confident that the number I gave you that what I'm looking for is at rate and on par with what I'm worth. And um, I'm I'm just not comfortable sharing my current salary. I respected that every time because mm-hmm. again, I understood and I wouldn't want to share that information either. But the thing you got to watch out for is a lot of recruiters are taught that, oh, well, if a candidate won't share that with you, then they're probably just a difficult candidate and you don't want to work with them anyways. Um, I didn't right. hold that viewpoint, but some people do and will write you off for that, which is not fair, but I know it happens. Yeah, it's not fair, but I mean, I think I wouldn't, even if they are like that, I wouldn't want to work with that recruiter anyways. And I think that's something exactly. that you have to be okay being away from. Mm-hmm. You know, if the recruiter has an opportunity but isn't willing to meet you at that crucial point, mm-hmm. then it's kind of a red flag that maybe you shouldn't work with that recruiter. Um, yeah. There's enough of us to choose from. (laughs) 
Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this Money Monday edition with our good friend Dana. And I wanted to give you a quick update. First of all, if you have not heard about it, we're doing a LinkedIn webinar together with our good friend Lindsay Mustaine where we are going to be teaching you how to stand out on LinkedIn and begin on your personal branding journey. That's going to be August 29th. If you have not signed up for it, go to brandhack.ninja. But some quick updates about that. Number one, I've told you that we're going to have giveaways, and we do. LinkedIn is sponsoring two of them. We've got Coder Camps on board with that as well. And just so you know, within less than a week, we filled up to 100% capacity. And Jason and Lindsay and I were figuring out, okay, what are we going to do? Because we have still a bunch of people that are asking how do I get into this thing and so I reached out to my company a trilogy solutions group and said hey would you guys want to get involved in this we're changing people's lives and their careers for the better and they said absolutely so now we have five times as many seats and within less than a week from that we're already at right around the 50% capacity mark so that's gonna fill up soon and we will not have more than that. So make sure if you have not signed up, go sign up at brandhack.ninja. It's going to be happening August 29th. And again, if you sign up, we've got a Slack channel where we're helping you to get started right now. Learn how to stand out on LinkedIn and build your personal brand. We don't want you to wait until August 29th. We want to add value to you right now. And we've already seen a huge positive impact and some positive feedback from people as well. So we've got another LinkedIn challenge coming out this week. Make sure you go to brandhack.ninja and sign up because only the people that are going to be at the webinar are allowed in that Slack channel. So thanks so much, everyone. I cannot wait to see you on August 29th. Get your seats before they run out again. All right. Now back to Money Monday with our good friend, Dana Charfalia. Kind of going back to uh, the whole, okay, let's say I've done my research and they, we get to the, the money question. Um, one of the things that I hear and see a lot and coach people on even while I'm talking to them is they'll flounder with maybe mm -hmm. they did the research, but they'll flounder when they say it. How do you yeah. help somebody in that? What would you coach me to do in that situation mm -hmm. if I did the research, but I didn't have the confidence to speak it? Well, I think the first thing that I'm always going to do because as a coach is I'm going to ask, what's making you uncomfortable about this conversation? And try to understand where that person's insecurity is coming from. Um, you know, is it truly they don't believe that they have the skills and they're not worth that money? Is it that they are just super, super shy? Like I would want to get to the bottom of what's causing them to have that insecurity and answer it that way. And then from there, once they kind of unveil, well, this is really what's making me uncomfortable, then kind of talk through helping them understand why perhaps their belief might maybe a little bit off kilter or kind of how, you know, show them, maybe play back how you would say it if you were them so that they can hear it directly from you and then kind of have them role play with you on the phone. I've done that a few times 
And once they say it a couple of times and able, are able to hear it from someone saying it so smoothly and confidently, they're like, oh, that does sound 10 times better. And if you can eliminate what that internal insecurity is through figuring out from them what it is and why they're feeling that way and kind of try to eliminate that, then you can immediately obviously increase their confidence and then it will shine through on the phone. That's a longer answer <laughs> than maybe you wanted. Yeah, but, no, that was good. Um, I think, confidence, I, okay. I think confidence can be gained by understanding the market too. You know, if you, yeah. if you talk to your fellow engineers and you're getting a pretty good barometer of what, what you're worth, then you, that should be able to give you a little bit of confidence when you go in there and be like, okay, I know my buddies mm -hmm. are making this. I'm about the same skill set as them. You know, what's mm -hmm. the deal here? Yeah. That's and actually a really I, good point. Sorry. Let me, mm -hmm. I'll, no, I'll say you're this good. real quick and then go <laughs> for going. it. So, that is what you just said, Jason, is something that I think is really, really valuable. Um, I don't know if you that are listening have a relationship with somebody at your work or maybe somebody that you know in the industry or something like that, that you can sit down and have that kind of awkward conversation. But like, look, I'm trying to figure out what I'm worth. I want to let you know what I'm making. Uh, and uh, would you let me know where, where you're at? And gauging because that can be a really a really solid piece to the puzzle to help you understand mm -hmm. where you should be asking and again this is another episode but uh you know it helps you with salary and um uh increase negotiations i can't think of what what that's mm -hmm. uh, pay raise there you go a raise negotiation uh having that information is really really powerful and it's it's not the easiest conversation to have but i've been in a situation where I did have that and it made such a huge difference. Um, so mm -hmm. definitely very worth trying to, to forge those relationships. Sorry, Dana, I, I cut you off. No, I you're sure good. I that out there. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree there. Um, oh, I was just going to make a point that from my own experience and working with more of the boot camp grads and, and the junior devs, there's so many times that I have seen someone with a complete lack of confidence because they're they're all they're doing is focusing on everything they don't have yet and how they only have this amount of experience and they've really only just brushed the surface and but they're forgetting so much of what has gotten them to this point and the things that they're going to bring with them even outside of their development skill sets they're they're going to bring value to that employer and so I think just again, purely from a junior standpoint, if you stop looking at what you don't have and really focus on the effort you put in at that boot camp, what you learned, mm. what you what skills and strengths you already have before you even started your dev boot camp that are going to make you an even stronger engineer. If you focus on all of that when you're thinking about what am I really worth, then I think it makes the conversation a bit easier because. I think we're naturally just taught to look at a job description and say, well, I don't have this, this, that, and that. Therefore, I should probably only ask for this much when that's not necessarily true. In some cases, yeah, employers won't negotiate with you if you're missing some of the core things, but that's not always the case. I've seen a junior developer with no professional experience get an offer out of the gate $20,000 higher than what another junior developer would have gotten with him missing experience. So. He just knew what he was good at and he wasn't afraid to sell it. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good point too. I mean, 
being able to tell your story, not just saying a number, but being able mm-hmm. to tell a story to back that number up. That is a really, yeah. really key part in all of this. Um, all right. So let's say uh, that I am about to answer the money question. Uh, this is how I typically tell people. It's just, it's a very easy three-step solution to the money question. First, just like Dana said, you've got to research what you're worth. You got to know what you're worth before that money question comes up. Because if you're trying to think of an answer at that moment, you're going to, you're selling yourself short. Number two, when the, when the answer or when the question comes, answer with that specific number that you came with, came up with beforehand. And number three, just shut it. Just shut up. Yeah. A lot of people, they, they, like I said, with that floundering thing, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm looking for 70,000, but you know, I'm negotiable. The, you yeah. know, I'm negotiable. Just put a target on your back that I can get five to $10,000 more from this guy than he's asking for. And mm-hmm. just shut up. Say, I'm looking for 70,000. That's it. That's all you got to say. You don't have to say anything after that. Just shut up. Be okay with the awkward silence. If there is awkward silence and just wait, do not be the first person to talk after that. Let the recruiter or the hiring manager be the first person to talk after that. That's, that's my advice. Dana, what is there a (laughs) go-to thing that you tell people to? No, that's actually right in line with what I was going to say is, is I think the majority, even, um, Senior engineers, the majority of them that I'm talking to, they they ha- they don't have a prepared answer for this. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I'd be okay somewhere in the range of you know 90 to 100k. I mean, I'd like 110, but I'm probably not going to get that. And then they just keep going, and I'm like, yeah, okay, no, just like give me a number. So when they've when I've told them for the feedback is very, I mean, it, pretty much exactly what you had said. I was just. I don't, I mean, a range sure is great, but I want to know what's going to make you the most happy. If you give me mm-hmm. a solid number to go off of, then, you know, later on, if I need to, you know, go down or bring you to that negotiation, but it's just, you got to stop with the filler words and yeah. just own it. Own yeah. the number. <laughs> own it. I was going to say, um, some yeah. people might feel like it's a good idea to throw out a range. I, I would just say mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Just go yeah. with, my the the least amount is this you know nothing, mm-hmm. nothing less than that and then uh just see how it goes from there yeah and yeah, i my, generally my and i know on, you guys both do oh i was just gonna say I, I think you're on the same page as me with this greg but um i think throwing out that least number just allows you to be in the driver's seat so that re- recruiters aren't calling you for something that is below what you're looking for yeah. so if you tell them that right up front we're generally, generally, not all, <laughs> going to respect that. And I think um, mm-hmm. good recruiters ask that number because they don't want to waste your time. Yeah. And you don't want to waste the recruiter's time either too, right? Like It's like, yeah. hey, this is where I'm at. What you got? But you know what? Um, I want to kind of bring up another point. We are talking about salaries, but um, contracts too. Uh, mm-hmm. I hate, I, those are the ones I really hate negotiating because remember early on, my, early on in my career, I was dickering back and forth with a guy about, like two bucks, you know, like, would you oh. really go from like 40 to 38, $2. I'm like, come on, man, really? Are we really talking about $2 here? Why? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's just $2. Yeah. Come on. Yep. And it's it, at that point, it wasn't, yeah. 
you could look at it either way. You could look at it from the candidate side, like, come on, man, it's just two bucks. And you just want to get to work, right? Yep. Or from the candidate side, you'd be like, no, it's the principal. I said 40. Come on. You know, like, I want those $2. Yeah. Um, th- but those are the ones that are really annoying to me. Yeah, that, yeah. that actually is a really good point because we have been talking about salary this entire time. One of the things that if I'm talking to somebody that has been in a full-time job for a long time, uh, or maybe they've only been in full-time jobs, but I call them about an opportunity that I think is really, really worth having a conversation about, even though it's not full-time, there's a formula. And I'm curious if Dana, if, if you can either affirm this or say, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not exactly accurate or, or maybe you have something different, but what you do is this. If you're going from a salary to a contract hourly role, you don't want to go, okay, so I'm making $100,000 a year, all right? And you, there's 2,080 hours of work hours in a year. And so I divide 100K by 2080. That's $48.07. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm looking for, $48.07. No. That yeah. exactly. That's the wrong no. thing to do because you know, <laughs> that's what you get paid. But what about benefits? What about yeah. bonus? Mm-hmm. What about 401k? What about I mean, all the other the things? The biggest one is time off. time off. You know, if you're not working, you're not getting paid. And really PTO, gotta, yeah. You got to be strategic there. <laughs> exactly. And so this is the formula that you should use. Typically, a contract role should be anywhere between 15 to 25 percent more depending on your uh benefits that you're getting and things like that don't shoot for the moon because you can you can cost yourself out of a a role just as easily but Mm -hmm. that's typically what it should be so a hundred thousand uh divided by 2080 that's 48 dollars and seven cents you times that right in the middle by 20 percent and you should be asking for fifty-seven dollars and sixty-nine cents. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, you could you could say fifty-five, you could say fifty-eight, whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. But that's that's what you should be doing. You shouldn't ask for. And I've seen a lot of people do that, where they say, "I'm making a hundred k, so I need 50. So that they just yep. divide it in two, and they think, yeah. "Okay, that's it." Um, then so, it w- is there a specific formula that you use, or no? No. So it's very. It's pretty much exactly what what you had said. Is I generally would just always tell them that, well, you have to account for all of this and obviously getting an understanding of, because a lot of times people don't really understand the differences between contract and perm. So a lot of times I'll ask like, do you know, do you really understand the differences between perm and contract and Mm -hmm. the things that you got to think about? And most of the time they're like, well, no, not really. So then I'll kind of walk them through what all the added costs might be and all of that. And obviously asking them like, you know, how many people are on your insurance right now? How many people might have, might you have to pay for? Because all of that is going to go through, go into how much you need in order to live comfortably during a contract period. So yeah, it's exactly the same. Um, 15 to 25% more um, is generally what I say too. So there we go. Hey, we actually know what we're doing. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Either that or we're just two people that don't know what we're doing and we right maybe we're the wrong one of the two yeah (laughs) here's another thing to think about too if um you're doing the contract to hire thing um your contract period is probably gonna be a lot more like you're saying greg right it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit more to compensate Mm -hmm. you for the benefits you're not getting um and then you're gonna convert to full-time and then that salary is not going to be the same right so i just advise people (laughs) you know 
don't live high in the hog. Just <laughs> understand it is, yes. it's going to go down. So and and be okay with that. Yeah. You know, if, if you if you go into an agreeing, okay, when I convert, it's going to be this amount. You know, don't don't screw the company over and stay a month and then leave. Right. You know, just do the right yeah. thing. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I no, think in a lot sure. of a ways, lot of people... it's the recruiters' due diligence to go through that with them, though. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Exactly. You know what I mean? You gotta you gotta cover that. Yeah. Now, it's, here's a question. It's a recruiter's responsibility to coach people through. Go for it. <laughs> here's a question for you guys. Um, for the contract to hire thing, I, it's probably different depending on the contract or the situation. But um, when it's contract to hire, does the staffing agency usually be involved with that conversion rate, or is that usually between the candidate and um, the company? That's something I've always been kind of wondering about. Um, go for it, I guess I'll go first. Um, it's that conversion is always going to be, we're always going to tell them what you're expecting upon conversion, but ultimately that offer and process is going to be between you and the employer that would convert you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my experience, yeah. we'll always tell them, Hey, if he's going to convert, he needs this number. And they usually know that going in up front. And it's up to them if they're like, well, you know what? We want to offer them 10 grand lower. Okay. <laughs> Good plan. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I was, in a, I was in a situation at the end of 2015 where um, a company mm-hmm. offered me contract to hire and it was the, the strangest contract and I walked away from it. And um, what was going on was it's, it was contract to hire, but it never gave a conversion date. So I never knew when I'd actually convert and it didn't give me a conversion mm-hmm. rate. I, I didn't know what I was converting to. And I'm like, this reads weird. Like, are, it, am I getting set up to be let go at any point before you, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, and I talked to a couple of recruiters yep. about it because I wasn't sure. I, I, was, I was actually unemployed at the time. So I was kind of hurting. So I, I needed to get to work. But even, even being unemployed, I was just like, oh man, this sounds scary. And I walked away from it. So I, do you guys see those kinds of things a lot where it's like weird contract to hire <laughs> situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've seen it where, well, I think so generally, right. When we're working with a client up front, we get everything that they're wanting up front. Why? Like what their expectations are. And from what I've seen with clients is they'll say, you know, we want to do a contract to hire. Generally our contract to hire period is going to be a six month contract to hire, but they will not most of the time put in any contract, the date at which you're going to convert. Um, just because they don't want to be locked into a contract if you're not the right person. And obviously if they, if they commit to you that they're going to convert you at that six month mark, something happens and they don't, then, you know, there's just more potential repercussions from the client perspective and the candidate perspective. So a lot of them just don't like to commit to that. Um, Mm -hmm. so it all depends on the trust level you have with the hiring manager, you know, how, how well your recruiter knows that client and their history of conversion. Um, those are always questions you, you should be asking about, Hey, how many, how many people have you converted with this specific client? Do you know what their statistics look like? Um, and they should know those numbers. They may not. And that's more risk on your part. So, Are you saying that it's more usual to see these scenarios where the date isn't set? And the yeah. oh, that's interesting because I didn't realize that. Um, mm-hmm. I've done contract to hire twice, and both times there was a date and a conversion rate. So, but maybe that was just a weird outlier situation, I guess. 
I've actually right. well, never seen have an idea a contract to hire thing with a date of exactly this is when we're going to yeah. hire you and this is what we're going to hire you at. I don't think I've ever seen that mm-hmm. actually. Like, well, I think well. it's a lot more common for it to be uh, more of a verbal, this is an approximate time of when we're planning on converting you. Uh, like for yeah. example, I've got a, a, a client in Los Angeles and it's basically an ongoing contract until they're able to bring you on full time. They have the full, you know, desire to bring you on board as a full-time employee, but it's, they don't say, you know, typically it's going to be six months or typically it's going to be 12 months or three months or whatever. They just say, mm-hmm. you're going to be on contract until we're able to bring you on. And so it's, right. it, I think that is a lot more common than them mm-hmm. ever giving you a specific, this is when we're going to do it because of exactly what Dana said, they're putting themselves at risk by saying, we are going to do it at this date. What happens mm-hmm. if they can't? What happens if there's a budget yeah. cut? They can keep you as a contractor, but they can't bring you on full time. And mm-hmm. so there's a whole liability thing there. So, so yeah, I think there's, there's a more, more of a chance of it not having the date than, than it would. Um, and then another thing, I mean, since we're kind of talking about the contract side, uh, if you are going down the contract route, you might get uh, the whole conversation of, do you want to go 1099? Do you want to go corp to corp? Do you want to go mm-hmm. W2? And especially if you've been around for a while, then you probably know exactly what that looks like. And, and maybe you don't, maybe you've never done 1099 or corp to corp, but at least you've heard it. But coming straight out of boot camp, you probably yeah. don't know <laughs> anything about that. You, you don't know even really what the terms are or what to expect or what to ask. So, I, I mean, how would you coach somebody? How do you explain the differences, Dana? So generally W-2, if you're going to go contract W-2, that's, you're basically an employee. Um, all of your taxes and everything like that are all set up as if you're an employee, but you're technically an employee of the agency that places you with that particular client. So your paychecks come from your agency, but you are working on site with that client. That's a regular employee W-2 scenario. Um, 1099 would be complete, just independent contractor. Um, you don't need to have an LLC or anything in place to, to do a 1099. Um, though it may be safer in some scenarios to have that set up or an S-Corp or whatever you want to do. So 1099, you're completely on your own as far as benefits, insurance, 401k. Like you're not getting any added benefits from that employer except for a paycheck. Um, but you also have to take care of your own taxes um, mm-hmm. from, from a 1099 perspective. And then corp to corp is very similar to 1099. But when you're doing corp to corp, basically you have your own LLC or S corp or corporation that you filed with whichever state you're located in and the client and or organization is hiring you as your own organization to consult with them. Um, And you, in those cases, most of the time you're going to have to have business insurance to be able to cover any liability that may happen. And you'll typically also have to cover your own, um, insurance and, and all of that extra stuff. But I have seen it where you can do corp to corp with your own LLC and still get some of, some of the similarities between a W-2. Um, every agency, it works a little bit different. Most of them have pretty strict standards of what they can follow and what they're allowed to do from a federal law standpoint. 
but every agency does things a little bit different. Right. And some of the benefits, so there, there's things that are good and and not bad necessarily, but just different about each scenario. W-2 is what most people are used to. W-2, like mm-hmm. you said, you don't have to worry about taxes. You don't have to worry about your insurance. You don't have to worry about a lot of different things. Um, but on Corp to Corp and 1099, typically you're going to get paid more per hour because the agency mm-hmm. does not have that burden on their side of, uh, you know, the taxes or the benefits and things like that, that you would normally get as a W-2 employee. And then also as a corp to corp or 1099 employee, you can write off so many things on taxes. You can write off, you can write off your gas, you can write off your laptop, you can write off, you know, a portion of your rent or your mortgage if you have a workstation. And again, this is not giving tax advice. You got to, if you're going to go down that right, you should probably ta- talk to a tax person, but there's a lot of benefits and there's a lot of risk to every single scenario, but that, that's what those are. Uh, and if you're going to get into the contracting side of those things, you should call a recruiter and, and figure that yes. stuff out, Google <laughs> it before you get into it. Absolutely. You have to be well informed. Like, do not make a decision until you know all of the details. Don't let anyone try to convince you, like, oh, we'll figure it out. Like, trust me. Like, I know what we're doing. Like, no, have your ducks in a row. Figure your stuff out. Do not let someone try to dictate you into agreeing to a contract until you know all the details and what it's going to be like. I've seen that happen. (laughs) It's not good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This has been a pretty interesting show, Greg. I kind of picked up some tips and stuff I, I didn't know, but um, just to kind of close it out, something that I was thinking about, because um, this, this is kind of a difficult show too, talking about money, um, mm-hmm. and something that I heard another guy tell me early in my career uh, was this, and, and the reason why I'm throwing this out here is to say to people that are listening, money isn't everything, right? Um, there's a lot of other factors to consider, and, and money probably shouldn't be the, the only thing driving you. Uh, as far as the job switch or whatever you're thinking about doing. And the thing that this guy told me was this. Um, there's like four four different pillars of things to think about for a, a new place to work at. And he said to me, Jason, if you can get all four of these things, you're probably in utopia. And the things are this. Um, obviously, one is how much are you making? Uh, who are you working for? What project are you working on? And who are you working with? You know, and if you if you're getting paid great, if your boss is awesome, if your project your project is really awesome too, and if um, you know the people you're working with are awesome, then you probably got the best job ever, right? So that, that's <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there because you know money money is like one one of many factors, right? So yeah, exactly. Well, Dana, thank you. So so much. We're for sure going to have you back on this show and super excited to, that you are joining us on this adventure. Uh, and it's guys, gals, everybody that's listening right now, if you have not done it yet, you need to go sign up for the LinkedIn webinar. Go to brandhack.ninja and sign up. We've got so much stuff coming down the pike for you guys. There's going to be giveaways. We're going to be live auditing people's LinkedIn profiles. There's going to be, there's a Slack channel and we're putting out LinkedIn challenges to help you get to where you want to be 
without having to wait for the webinar. We want the webinar to be the grand finale, not the entire event. So go sign up, brandhack.ninja. Can't wait to see you guys there. And thank you so much for listening. See you guys soon. Thank you.